You're listening to the Fringe Legal Podcast. This is the show for lawyers and law firm leaders. I'm your host, Ab. In each episode, I talk with technologists, key players, and experts to help you navigate the changing landscape that is the legal profession. If you're looking for strategies, learn about trending topics, and get updates from the experts, then this is the place for you. Let's get to it. Hello, hello, and welcome to this episode of the Fringe Legal Podcast. Today, we are speaking with Kim Lewis. Kim is the Legal Transformation Manager at Gilbert and Tobin, and there she wears quite a few hats. We talk about a few of them today. The initial idea for this episode was relatively simple. I wanted to chat with Kim about how she explains complex technical topics to a non-technical audience, the lawyers. But like with all things great, it evolved and it did so quickly. Ultimately, we end up speaking about things ranging from legal transformation, what that means to Kim, the state of play today, and speculating a little bit about where it may be going in the future. We talk about the client journey, essentially what happens to the work after it's been delivered, something I've been pondering quite a bit recently. And Kim then explains the concept of machine learning and computer modeling to me using art as an analogy. Uh, just a note, please be sure to check out the accompanying blog post to this uh, to this episode as it has an image that depicts the art that we discuss during the episode. It'll make a lot more sense. If you enjoy it, this episode, please subscribe on your favorite platform and be sure to give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. It helps us be discovered. And now, without further ado, here's my conversation with Kim Lewis. Hello and welcome to this episode of the Fringe Legal Podcast. I'm joined today by Kim Lewis from Australia. Kim is the Legal Transformation Manager at Gilbert and Tobin. Before that, she was a corporate M&A KM lawyer at Slaughter and May. Kim, welcome. Thank you for joining me today. Thanks very much. And so I guess let's get started by what does legal transformation mean? So what, what do you do at GNT and how did you end up there? So at GNT, I do transformation full time. So I'm a product manager for a lot of different legal technologies. I actually sit with lawyers in the corporate teams in the Sydney offices, but I'm responsible for the broader offices in Melbourne and Perth. So I do a bit of traveling too. I sit with the corporate teams. It kind of suits my background as a corporate lawyer. And what I'm really trying to do is drive adoption of legal technology across the firm but also think about different ways we can use it when we're actually practicing law. So having one eye on what the lawyers are doing and then one eye on what the technology can do, sort of bring it together, and um, the sort of interface between the lawyers and the technology. It's a really interesting role. I actually got into it because I really saw an opportunity, particularly when I was practicing, for different tools to be used to improve efficiencies. So I guess that kind of leads nicely into what transformation means to me. I think it is about efficient client service at the end of the day. Yeah, we just need to be thinking, always thinking about what we're doing as lawyers and looking internally as to what the law firm is doing. And I think there's a lot of transformation for me internally within the law firm means a lot about change management, can mean training, can be looking at things in a different way, including how we work and the processes we're working with. And actually looking to reinvent some of those, because I think some of them are quite archaic, I'll be honest. 
<laughs> and then also looking at externally how we can best deliver that client service. At the end of the day, it all comes down to clients. That's what we're doing is delivering a service to clients. So how we deliver that service, what happens to our legal advice once we give it to the client is a really interesting point. And we're actually working at GNT with GNT Innovate, which is our external client consultancy, which has been set up. And that's been fascinating to see that sort of external side of transformation. Wow. So it sounds quite a holistic process, right? both internal and external. So I guess before we get to the more sort of funkier topics, you've mentioned quite a few things that we can sort of, I want to pick about a little bit. So you're tackling with some of the, I guess, topics that we hear quite a lot about in, within the legal profession and elsewhere. You, know, you talked about change management, about reinventing some archaic processes. And actually the thing that got my attention really is what does happen to the advice once you deliver it as a lawyer. So I guess as a firm or within, within your role, how do you find that out? Do you go and then speak to your clients as part of the GT Innovate program or elsewhere or otherwise to really get an understanding of, you know, once the work is out the door, what are they doing with it and how you can add value further? Yeah, so it's almost even more than that, actually, what we touch on. It's like, actually, how how are we, I don't want to say physically, because it's all done pretty much by email. Mm. Even that communication, how are we communicating with our clients during, like, for example, a negotiation of a particular document? How are we sending them updates and reminders? Mm. There's, there's a whole communication piece that happens during, a, let's say, a transaction in a corporate sense. Right. And then there's, right, we've now delivered that transaction, we've delivered that legal advice and those documents, what happens to them after that? And what we typically find is that in-house legal teams are really strapped for time. Mm. They don't have the budget because they're seen as, well, they're not a cost center typically uh, in the broader company. Mm -hmm. And so they really struggle sometimes to have budget considerations and have the headcount to actually utilize the legal advice in the best way and reduce the risks internally. So they don't have, for example, just bringing back down to earth things like contract management systems, really big issues in terms of managing whole transactions within an inbox. That's, mm. that's not uncommon. And so what we actually would do is rather than just a simple talk with a client, what we're doing with the Innovate Consultancy is actually sitting them down and running design thinking workshops. Mm -hmm. The aim of this is to actually get to the fundamental pain points within the service. And so we can actually tackle those. I think it's quite interesting because I think lawyers are starting to slowly question what they're delivering mm -hmm. as a service. And in quite a few cases, it's legal advice, but that legal advice goes to, this is where it's very important to have a commercial mindset, the actual business as a whole and the way that the client's business functions actually comes down to a lot of risk mm -hmm. and it comes to making decisions within the client's business. So it's very interesting looking at transformation as a whole. And I should say that all of these views are my own as well. <laughs> I'm not speaking on behalf of GNT, but certainly I find it very interesting to see that different side of things. And I'm not sure that many lawyers, I mean, I would like to think that everyone would think that way, but I'm not sure that many people do. Mm. Think of it as a broader part of a whole. I mean, I used to be a waitress, actually. I, I liken it to, to pre preparing a whole, you know, I love an analogy, of preparing like a great, amazing five-star Michelin meal mm. from a chef. 
and then delivering it, but the the, the waitress is useless and the, the order gets lost and the order either goes to the wrong table or the food lands up on the table and it's cold. Mm. And so you've gone into all this effort into making this most amazing experience. And it's an experience as a whole. It's, it's mm-hmm. what that person feels when they walk into the restaurant. It's how they're welcomed by the servers. And I think we need to start thinking of legal service delivery in that same way. We are delivering a service. We want to make sure whatever food or legal advice we're delivering <laughs> comes in hot, really yeah. impresses the client, and also satisfies them for whatever they're expecting. It's a really difficult thing to get right. Yeah, and I think, I mean, I really like the analogy, and I'm sure that's one of the many analogies to come in our conversation today. <laughs> you get <laughs> um, it. <laughs> But it's so important because, you know, similar to a Michelin star restaurant or even just a high quality restaurant, there's so much to your experience there than just the food itself, right? So whether you sit down and someone comes and explains to you what you're eating, sometimes they even tell you a suggested order in which to eat certain dishes, for example, all of the, all of those things really add up and add to not just the overall experience but what happens and how you feel thereafter after you leave the restaurant you know how satisfied you may feel will in some small way or or otherwise will be dictated by that yeah and also your expectations Mm. as a customer in a restaurant like some of the best meals i've had have been in some sort of like dingy little tucked away place where they've just served like the freshest dumplings Mm. and the expectation I had when I walked into the restaurant wasn't that great but actually the food itself was delicious and it was amazing and also the company there's there's like a whole number of factors that go into your experience of it but I think it's heavily influenced by expectation and I think one of the one of the real difficulties that's faced in houseware clients is they Sometimes they they actually don't know what to expect and we may not communicate that or maybe they're going to a fancy restaurant just because they want to be seen there. Right. You know, maybe they're not going for the food (laughs) and and a good restaurant, a good waiter, a good service personnel will recognize that and then tailor the experience for them. You're also not going to go love going back to a restaurant if it costs you an arm and a leg and you weren't satisfied with that experience. So the expectation and the price has a huge impact on the type of service that we should be looking to deliver. Yeah, and I know, think as a waiter or as a lawyer. <laughs> and it, it depends on, you know, to carry analogy even further. If you go to that <laughs> oh, away, gonna get stressed. <laughs> <laughs> if you if you go to that sort of tucked away restaurant ser- serving dumplings for the very first time and you have no expectations, as the restaurant you're either trading on giving that person a amazing experience so they come back or you're trading on the fact that they know the brand or they've been there before right so I, and i think that you know you can liken that to any other service if you already have a client who knows of you who knows of your brand or certainly the work then the bar is a little bit lower not that you don't have to produce the same quality again because in some ways then now you have to meet and exceed that expectation but if it's a brand new client whether it's to your firm your practice or as an individual, or sometimes maybe this is the first time that client is utilizing a a legal function outside of, well, outsourcing the legal function, I guess, then it's so important to give them that 
experience so they can actually say this was great this was completely painless i got exactly what i wanted and then some and then there's services that follow afterwards because that's how you make those clients sticky yeah exactly and i think a lot of it has to come down to the personal touch which is why it's all very interesting with all this legal technology you know you can Mm. have all this legal technology but actually if you're able to sort of make that customer feel like they're part of a community or you're friends with them then it becomes much easier to develop that sort of I would have said the customer supplier relationship like there's this Mm -hmm. coffee place that I go to about five minutes away from my flat really lucky to have them there it's almost like a small village and these Greek this Greek family do the best coffee I swear in Sydney like I absolutely love it but one of the reasons I go back is each time I walk past to go home one of the Greek waiters goes like, hey, how are you going? You know, what's going on? Mm-hmm. And it's that sort of personal touch, which is, you know, you can almost go back even if the food's not that great. And it depends on what you're looking for. But I think it's really interesting to look at legal service in a different way. And I guess that's what I kind of meant by the restaurant analogy. I mean, we've stretched it out so much. But when <laughs> you start looking at it, it's really interesting because you start seeing different things with the way you deliver legal services. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what I found fascinating. So I guess when we last met in person, you were sort of using another analogy around sort of climate change and the forward progression or lack of in some instances of, of legal. So I guess, what do you think is the state of legal tech now? Where do you think we are? Where are things going? So I think... I was always going to say this, aren't I? I think we're at quite an interesting stage. I think what I've really noticed is, particularly as I've been looking at it for maybe, heck, getting on for four years now, Mm. we've just seen, like, particularly maybe about four or five years ago, a huge proliferation in the number of legal tech products. Mm -hmm. And I think what's interesting is we're starting to see a bit more consolidation in the market. I mean, you obviously know about a few consolidations that have happened recently. But I think that's that's really good because it makes it much easier to procure products when things are all on one platform. You're not looking at a multitude of different things. But I think I think it is still really difficult to pick your legal tech products. And I think there is still quite a gap between the sort of the lawyer experience of doing legal work and I guess the way that legal tech is developed. I think the user experience could be improved a lot for lawyers so I think I think we'll start to see things become a lot more intuitive a lot more UI sort of design led and I think that's going to be really interesting but I think the reason why we're having all of this legal tech as well is because we're just dealing with just huge volumes of digital data and contracts and information and there's actually been a lot of interesting enhancements of technology such as natural language processing for AI um, which are being brought to bear on existing legal problems so yeah I think it's Interesting, but I think we've still got a a bit of a way to go. Yeah, and I mean, there's obviously been plenty written about the consolidation within the legal tech space. And, you know, obviously I work at a company that certainly has a big part to play in that at the moment. But yeah, very much so. I think one of the things that's changing from, if you look back, probably five years or 10 years in the past, a lot of the technologies were almost developed in silo, right? They were just developed with, we think there's a problem that exists here. This is a solution that a person or a team has thought about and they push it out to market. And of course, there are exceptions. And I'm very much generalizing. 
but more and more in the last five years, there's been a the, the proliferation of legal tech products has been driven by lawyers in, in a lot of instances or those working within law firms or within certainly legal in some way that have experienced the problem, which means they're able to bring in their very much a user-centric methodology in how to solve the problem, right? And that, that may still just be one way of solving a specific problem, but it's a better start than someone who has little appreciation of what the issue might be at a deeper level. So that's made a big difference, but you're right. It's certainly about how do we make this more personal to those that are actually working on the issue? How do we make things relevant to the real users that are going to be using the legal tech product, right? So rather than those that are actually implementing the solutions, can we design technology for the users? And that's driven by, in a lot of instances, a big focus on UI, on UX. And I know you and I have talked about, you know, certain products and platforms within the M&A space. And I think that's where there's been way bigger changes and transformations that have happened, certainly compared to a lot of the, the desktop products. Yeah, I think, I think there's, there's a couple of things just there. Like, I think there's been an appreciation by lawyers a little bit more generally I still think it's quite isolated actually of the I guess it's the requirement to start looking at things in a different way I think that the training I think there's a huge a huge gap in in the training of lawyers within this space and also getting lawyers to be a bit more curious mm -hmm. to to start thinking how they could use tools I think there's been a, a growing appreciation of that's partly driven because there's just so much data that we can't get through at all. Mm -hmm. But people have needed to skill up in either the technology or the law. And I think it's quite interesting because certainly when I started working in this space and it was only four years ago or whatever, it was, there was still very much a divide. You had the tech people making the tech and the lawyers were, you know, sort of piloting it, but mm -hmm. it wasn't perfect. It's quite interesting, actually, because lawyers are some of the most inventive people with yeah. word. Like, I have never come across people who have used word and know word so well <laughs> as lawyers. Incredibly inventive in some ways, but, mm. but not exploratory, not experimental. And that's not developed as part of the training yeah. academically at university. So I think people have actually, we're starting to see now people who have sort of crossed the divide as it were. And I think we're starting to see the benefits of that in legal technology. So yeah, I think a key part of it going forward will be actually that training piece. How do we get this whole new generation of lawyers and bring along everyone else too, mm -hmm. to really start using and thinking about how we use this technology? Yeah. And I think that I hear quite a lot as I speak to law firms around the world, actually, and this isn't by any, any means niche to Australia or the US or anywhere else. I, I keep hearing that lawyers don't like technology, lawyers aren't creative. And I very much dispute both of those things because, A, as you said, um, certainly with Word and otherwise, some of the lawyers, a lot of the lawyers I know actually are very, very creative. They just tend to be very creative in the way that their practice is run, right? So the what they're able to, the solutions they come up to, to service their clients and things of that nature. You know, they are immensely creative in that. And with regards to technology, I know plenty of lawyers that have iPads, have iPhones, that run some of the latest things. And it's not that lawyers aren't good with technology. It's that you have to make technology relevant to what they need to get done. And that's a lot of that is the training piece. A lot of that is 
managing their expectations. And actually a big part of that is just allowing or giving them a way to start gradually changing their mindset so you can bring about, you know, big sudden change in a, you know, in a short time. And that's the hardest bit. And, you know, you mentioned that part of what you do is around change management and it's difficult for sure. And until you get this really good mixture of technology practice and people wanting to buy in, you know, it's hard to get the critical mass of everyone else to start adopting that as well. Yeah, I think I think you touched on one thing there, which was time, like time, <laughs> time for adoption, time that lawyers spend on looking at things and looking outside their business as usual, little, I would call it a box. When I first came to it, I was I'll be honest, I've, I found it so slow. Mm. I thought it was incredibly obvious that we should be looking at all of these things. And I couldn't understand why people weren't seeing <laughs> what I was seeing. <laughs> but equally, what I've, it, and that's the huge change management piece. It's been a huge learning for me. Is you can't just jump into this sort of stuff and expect everyone to just get going with something. Like it does take a lot of time and you have to be very persistent in the nicest way mm. to actually make use of that. But also I think there is, I mean, and this is my personal view, just a huge conflict with the way that we view, view time in a law firm right. as the billable hour. Yeah. You know, if we can't charge for it, it's not important. And the way that the technology works is you'll often be asked, oh, provide me with a business case. If you're looking at sort of an old, old school business model, provide me with the historic value and show me the time savings on this particular project it's very difficult to get with a lot of this legal technology mm. and so that sort of inhibits people starting in the very first place because that what they're seeing what they're doing with legal technology is not of value so actually mm. giving that upfront cost and then going in and developing the technology I think is still a bit of a challenge I think we've got better at it because we've got actually headcount now within law firms and also within clients like legal operations and all that sort of stuff where people actually do have the time to invest in this sort of stuff. It's, it's a long-term investment that can be really uncertain, but I think it's a worthwhile one. Yeah, and I think it just goes down to you know, how individuals and businesses, because ultimately, and you mentioned it a while ago, actually now at the start of the conversation, you have to be able to tie all of these things to some sort of a business benefit, right? But it's just how businesses think and you need to be able to do both, both the short-term thinking, which just may be, let's continue with business as usual, which may not be the best approach, but actually you do have to segment, let's say, 80% of your resources. And of course, I'm just making up numbers right now. And the rest of the 20% is diverted to thinking about long-term things, right? Because any successful business, you do have to be at the frontier of what may happen. And of course, you're making some bets and assumptions around what may happen, but you have to be prepared to be able to have the agility to move should that should your assumptions come true or something close enough to that is true. And I don't think enough law firms in the past have done that. I think more and more law firms are starting to do that. It's just that percentage that actually is put towards, I'm going to call it frontier thinking, is very, very small, certainly single digits, right? And in 
the most innovative law firm, to use a very cliche term, that percentage simply is just greater. And I think that's a big difference. And it's almost a compound effect that the more you do that, the better you get at identifying potential trends, problems, and so on, and market forces, and you just exponentially improve over time. And I think that's what's lacking across the industry. There's not enough people doing that. Yeah, and I think and I think you need to be investing in it now. It's like, and that's where the sort of the climate change metaphor came about, is that, you know, you know we should be acting kind of now, because even though the changes are so slow, they're going to hit in a few years' time, and we need to be we need to be taking action, but also within the law firm context, we need to be training the employees. We need to be training the workforce so that they can adapt. And this goes to the sort of evolutionary analogy, which works really nicely here, is like if you don't adapt, then you don't survive. Equally, you don't want to go off on a limb either. And I think that's what's quite difficult for law firms is where do you where do you draw that line? Where is where is the right amount of change within the organization at a certain point in time i think it's a very difficult one to judge but i know that mm-hmm. sitting down and doing nothing is not really an option do you think you can gauge that within certainly in your experience how have you gauged that if you're trying something with users to how do you get the feedback to know if that's the right direction to take things in in terms of like it is quite interesting so so first off macro scale like and using the environment analogy it's all relative right so you just have to grow faster than the next tree <laughs> so actually i think the, <laughs> the bar is like relatively low within law hmm. so <laughs> in terms of like sort of picking where you are in the legal market I think we could be moving a little bit faster if I'm honest but Mm -hmm. because everyone's in the same boat we're we're not moving as fast sort of on that sort of macro scale but then going down right to the micro sort of scale I think what's quite interesting is finding people in the organization who will give you their time and then going and asking them to see if they see potential in a particular product or a particular idea I mean obviously there when we actually go whenever whenever we get we'd like to focus on pain points in the nice again in the nicest way rather than looking at ideas which can easily be confused with solutions but when we're looking at those pain points what we'll do is we'll match it against the firm strategy we'll also want to look for quick wins things that are very low cost to implement ideally that can have a broad a very broad effect but with very low training so there are a huge number of considerations that we'd take in terms of like how we'd actually move it forward but if Mm -hmm. we were looking at we like to get people's opinions but finding the people who are most interested in this sort of stuff in the first place and then getting their opinion as well as canvassing broader people that's that's where we go from we we really work off what the users are saying Mm. if the users turn around and say no we don't need that then we won't pursue it anymore okay I think that makes sense. And yeah, I agree. I think having that macro and micro view, and you know, what I think was important there is just aligning it to the firm strategy as well, because yeah, I think it's too easy to sometimes do these things in silo and you end up with a hodgepodge of different people trying on different tech, which is okay. But if none of them actually align with where the business is trying to go, then ultimately, certainly at a large scale adoption level, it's, it's just not going to work no matter how good the tech is. Yeah, you'll also just drain out your IT department as well. Because yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they, they only have a certain amount of time and they're fixing 
you know, I don't know what might have happened. Like servers gone down overnight in Timbuktu or something like that. <laughs> you can try and push things through, but in, in reality, you just mm-hmm. need the resources, and which is basically people with time in yeah. order to push it through. So yeah, you need to be quite selective about the, the number of projects in relation to one another too. Okay, yeah. And so I, I guess we've talked about where legal tech is, the frontier technology and how firms should allocate some some time of thinking and focusing on that and focusing on the longer term. And I guess as a base level to that, if you move one level down, maybe all the way down to the foundations, first you need people generally, and by people, I mean just people working in law firms, to be, I'm going to use the word competent, that's the word I have in my mind, but incompetent in understanding the potential of technology. And as mm-hmm. some of the legal tech is sometimes complicated, not in how it can be used, but certainly the concepts surrounding it. So if you think about things like machine learning or computer modeling and so on, how do you help with getting that base level knowledge spread across the firm or certainly to those that you seek advice from? So there's a mixture of different avenues and it all just comes down to training Mm -hmm. and disguising training really (laughs) as well for helpful advice. (laughs) And I quite a relatively chatty person, I guess. I'll go along and say hello to people. I'll also overhear different things going on within the teams. And I know people as well. So I'll just go up and say like, oh, how's it going? You know, how's work? And they're like, oh, we've got this big IPO coming along. I was like, aha, have you tried using the verification tool? Or my favorite slogan now, you'll be pleased to hear, Ab, is are you using contract companions? (laughs) (laughs) Which has become a meme. Excellent. (laughs) But it's, uh, it's, 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 I think, and I think that goes to jumping right back to the restaurant idea Hmm. being that, oh, I don't like to think of myself as a concierge. I'm, I'm not that smarmy, I hope. But, you know, just, just trying to guide people along the way. But I also run a lot of training. And I, I quite enjoy doing that sort of stuff. So I quite like that teaching aspect of it. So just run lots of training, particularly for new joiners. That's always quite interesting because mm-hmm. they've come from different places and they've got different ideas and have worked in different things. But it's always very difficult to get people to come along to training. I'm not going to lie. So yeah. that's where it, free coffees come in handy we made like a whole load of coffee vouchers for a launch of some tech recently they were an absolute hit and i literally just went around the whole floor and said hey i think there's this product that you'll find really cool and managed to train up like a really large number of people i think it was about sort of 80 to 90 people and space about two weeks and doing it quite one-on-one really helped so i guess there's lots of different techniques and everyone has their own way but i try and make it as fun as possible mm. few little incentives in there but yeah that's that would that would be how i'd be avenues for going about making this change okay and, and, people up. and then i know when we were speaking previously you mentioned basically the idea of explaining complex concepts in simpler terms and certainly using analogies as you love to do and mm-hmm. the i think the example that you sent me which I would like you to expand on if you could, is basically using art to explain computer modeling and machine learning, which is wonderful because I'm certainly a novice at best when it comes to computer modeling and some, somewhat okay when it comes to machine learning. So yeah, how would you go about using analogies? And I assume that the reason for doing that is so it becomes a bit more memorable for people, right? It's almost like a mnemonic device more than anything else. Yeah, so 
I think it's a nice way of teaching because it kind of gives someone a story mm-hmm. that they can also repeat to other people. I think the main thing for me is trying to make it non-technical. I find that people get immediately quite scared when you start mm. talking about technology, <laughs> particularly when it comes down to something so complex like machine learning or artificial intelligence. And mm. I think it's a real barrier to entry, actually. It's a real barrier to understanding when you've got something so complicated. Mm. And so I quite like using art or, as I say, putting the art into artificial intelligence and trying to make it less less hype, more something that people can easily understand by reference to something they've been through themselves mm-hmm. yeah I think I think it's quite an interesting one because I've realized it's very difficult to explain over a podcast <laughs> typically I'm in a room and at GNT we have a whole load of great aboriginal art so mm-hmm. I'll just turn around and start pointing at you know a picture of a crocodile or an emu or something I'm not even right. an emu what am I talking about I'm in Australia you know a lizard or something and, and start using that so I'll, I'll do my best to explain it on a podcast and again this is non-technical all I'm wanting lawyers to do whenever I'm talking about this is to understand the very basics of what the AI is doing because so often people say oh it's just a word search isn't it (laughs) and I sort of of have my head 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 a little bit my hands and (laughs) I start crying on the inside now I'm joking but you know it's saying no look you know it's more than a word search here and so hopefully it's quite simple. I will give it my best shot, though. Let's try it. Yeah. Yeah. And with all these AI platforms, I should say this is supplementing what the lawyers do. So it's absolutely mm-hmm. critical that the lawyers understand very basically how it's working. People often expect it just to do their due diligence for them. And I should say I'm talking about AI and machine learning for contract analysis. Mm-hmm which does have a little bit of word search in it, but it's a little bit more sophisticated than that too. I'm not going to focus on e-discovery. That's not really my ballgame. Right, right. So, right. So kicking off, are you ready? I'm ready. That's fine. For the analogy. Yeah. <laughs> you sitting comfortably. I'm okay, ready cool. to imagine. So, <laughs> I want you to picture a sentence. So what do you see when you look at a sentence? This is a question for you, Ab. I'm going to make it interactive. Sure. What is a sentence? It's a collection of words separated by spaces. Yeah, brilliant. Oh, it was an easy one. Five points. <laughs> so, yeah, it's a pattern of words. And they're arranged in a certain order. And when you read them, they kind of make sense, right? Ideally. Yeah. Not necessarily all the time when you're reading a legal contract. <laughs> I also have to read them about five times before I understand what on earth they're going on about. But that brings me on to the next piece. It's like, what do we see when we look at a contract? Mm. And what we're seeing are patterns of words probably grouped together in paragraphs that have their own meaning and lawyers for some reason call these paragraphs clauses and it's just a bit of a legal innovation to group all of the similar information together in a contract so that it can be easy to understand and Mm cross-referenced. So that's a contract. Now I want to imagine that we're in an art gallery and we're looking at a painting. What are you seeing when you're looking at a painting, Ab? Usually a bunch of different colors arranged in some specific way to resemble a object, shape, person, something along those lines. Yeah, exactly. So when we're looking at a painting, we're looking at loads of tiny little brush strokes. If it was a photo, we'd be looking at a load of pixels. Mm-hmm. I really like using the example of George Surratt and Paul Signac's pontillism or, or dot art, really, because I think that sort of explains it quite well. Aboriginal art is also really great for this because it involves a lot of dots and Hmm. small different dots of Mm colour. So 
what Surat did really well was actually break down an image of an object into its constituent parts and its pixels, like points of pure color that are blended together when you look at something and you stand back. So it's only really in context that we can see a picture. Like if we zoomed in with a magnifying glass, we'd only see one dot, and that's not particularly helpful for us. We need to look back and look at the picture and try and understand it based on all of the dots together, how our eyes work. So bringing this back to machine learning, mm. what the AI is doing, and well, we can call it AI, but I prefer machine learning, or the computer models are doing is they're, they're looking at a contract like a picture. They're converting all of the words into dots or binary code. Mm -hmm. So it's just seeing strings of numbers instead of words. And then based on its understanding of the objects or the dots in the painting or contract, is actually ascribing some meaning to each of those objects. So if we looked at a picture of a Surat painting on a riverbank in France in 1880, mm -hmm. we'd be seeing lots of different objects. Examples would be a lady with an umbrella. Mm -hmm. It could be a child swimming. It could be, we could also notice different things about the painting. So we'd be noticing that it's probably painting, painted in 1880 because of what people are wearing. We could see the season based on the leaves on the trees or the color of the light. So whenever we look at a picture, we're picking out the objects and giving them meanings. And the way that we give them meanings is based off our existing knowledge of those objects. So I've seen an umbrella before. Hmm. I've seen an umbrella many times before, so I can recognize lots of different types of umbrellas. The artificial intelligence or the machine learning works in the same way. It's looking at a contract, it's breaking it down, and then based off the its knowledge of all of the different clauses and paragraphs that it's seen before, it's describing those paragraphs with a meaning. So just like we see a lady with an umbrella, the machine learning might see a change of control clause, for example. So the idea of explaining machine learning in that way is to try and make it less technical, mm -hmm. but to give the idea that it's more than a word search, it's actually based off patterns. Mm -hmm. So it becomes really interesting when you start thinking about the uses for machine learning, because suddenly you can play effectively spot the difference with your contract mm -hmm. you can start seeing patterns across all of the different contracts and you're not just looking at particular word search so you could group all of the surat paintings together because they all look a little bit similar based on their pattern just as you could group together all of the picassos because they have a certain style so it's all based on pattern analysis and i just quite like using art to explain that i've probably babbled on for quite a bit that of was time good there. that was good i was just thinking, i was just thinking through that no, I think that that's really actually quite a good way of explaining complicated concepts, right? And obviously you have to, well, in order to be able to do that, you have to be able to understand the concepts yourself to be able to simplify them to the very, very essentials. And, you know, here just basically the concept of pattern analysis and how that works and how you can sort of teach it to identify an umbrella or how you can teach a machine to identify what a Surat painting is, for example. But yeah, and I've assumed you've used this to explain other concepts as well. And it goes well, it goes down well with the lawyers and users, do you think? Yeah, no, it's just, it's just interesting because people aren't expecting it. Mm. So they walk into a room and what they think is going to be about machine learning and then they actually <laughs> start to art. And, and I think another thing that you get lots of questions off that as well so from the explanation i should say so mm -hmm. like we could explore themes of bias <laughs> <laughs> yep. explore themes of bias so we judge a painting based on what we know 
you know, but what if someone from the Amazon was suddenly in an art gallery and looking at a load of Surat paintings? Mm. Like, what on earth is going on here? I've never seen France in 1880, like what's going on? So it, it's very important to look at different perspectives when you're teaching the machine to recognize objects. Mm-hmm. And also we need people to actually be good teachers so that they actually can spot objects. So if I said the umbrella was a cat, obviously that would be a bit problematic. But if I was colorblind, that might be quite interesting. Um, <laughs> there are lots of different ways of looking at the data, the information contained within the contract. So we just need to be very aware that you know, while this is all technology, it's fundamentally human and it's governed mm-hmm. by the same human limitations that we'd have with looking at anything just because we're human. Yeah, very much so. And certainly with AI and it will develop further and further as the models develop further as well, because certainly the bias will come into play. We've seen bias come into play when it comes to, I'm going to call it AI, but it's basically deep neural nets and so on. When it comes to your search results on Google or whatever search engine you tend to use, because if you feed it enough information of a certain type, it will essentially create its worldview based on that information so yeah it certainly becomes a careful consideration for those that are creating these models in the first place and then secondly for those that are training it further to verify the results and make sure that you know, there, there needs to be some sort of check and balances built into it exactly we, we can't escape it mm-hmm. because we're human like we've built this machine it's, it's reading stuff in a different way but it's still influenced by our teaching of it yeah. and our data you know, we can't escape that, but I think the important thing is awareness of it. So that's also one thing that I try and touch on in the training is, just, yeah, just trying to look at something in a slightly different way, something that people already know, and then applying that to something either scary or new. I think just sometimes we need to think of different ways of teaching stuff. We can't just rely on technology. Yeah, very much itself. so. Yeah, and especially when you're teaching people how to use complex technology, then sometimes it, it pays dividends to take a step away from the computer and so on, just so people understand the first principles before they dig deep into how to use something. Yeah, exactly. Well, they're able to spot use cases for it as well, which you might not have even seen. Yeah. The biggest limitation on transformation internally is probably myself. Like, <laughs> you know, I, you need to be like constantly looking outside at different, different influences and different lawyers have different perspectives and that's always very interesting to see yeah very much so i'm conscious of time so i guess mm-hmm. we've covered two two very separate but somewhat related streams so <laughs> restaurants and art <laughs> two of my favorite things <laughs> <laughs> exactly and then a little bit of climate change sprinkled in on top is fine so yeah we looked at essentially legal tech where things are going where things are how do you actually help and enable lawyers and users to think about how tech products should be, how to use them better. And that sort of led us to how do you explain complex, sometimes complex concepts to users in a different way to give them the ability to spot, I suppose, novel use cases that even maybe the creators of the technology haven't thought of. And I think that's that's just really quickly, that's the most important point about the legal technology at the moment. This, what we're seeing in legal tech is relatively novel solutions, but mm-hmm. actually quite basic solutions, I'll be honest, mm-hmm. to existing problems that are occurring as business as usual for lawyers. And I think the really next interesting avenue will be start to see will be when we start to see 
people actually looking at the problems in a completely different way to come up with novel problems for then to create novel solutions as well. We would stop solving business as usual and we start mm. looking actually about what we're selling. Like, are we actually selling food at the restaurant or actually are we selling a space because people just want to come in from the rain? Like, right. <laughs> you need to think about the, the reason what the service is for. Yeah, I think that's right. And we're starting to, because even as, you know, as software companies and developers, I guess you have two avenues in developing software. One is you look at the existing way of doing something and you essentially augment or make it better in some way, right? And that's mm. where most technology is at. And obviously that's an oversimplification, but essentially, you know, something is being done in an antiquated way. Can we make that a bit less painful? Can we just essentially yeah. automate that? So due diligence, for example, is, is a good way of doing that. The next approach or the next level even is can we come up a completely different way of working that completely gets rid of the old way altogether so you don't even need to do it and that's very very difficult to do and that takes a lot of time because sometimes people do that and the market doesn't accept it the users don't accept it for a long time and that really is that really is where true shift happens but that takes both the willingness of someone to think outside the box and develop the solution and also for those to whom the solution applies to accept it and you know it it sort of applies to pretty much any technology innovation and innovation doesn't have to be tech certainly and that's the really hard bit i don't know if we'll see any of that in the next couple of years that's widely accepted and we're starting to see some of that but do you get how do you get mainstream acceptance of that and really that's really hard to predict right but again it goes back to firms being open and thinking about at least being willing to develop and accept those kinds of ways of doing that because i mean to use your food analogy if you go to a circus they serve food doesn't mean it's a restaurant doesn't mean it's a space where people want to hang out they're there for entertainment and the food is just a something that is almost a byproduct yeah. yeah, exactly. Because people are always hungry. And that's the, <laughs> exactly. that's the real interesting problem if you've yeah. actually narrowed it down. Yeah. But like, yeah, I think I think we need to start to ask those questions. But I think, yeah, just touching on what you were saying, like, I think that's the next step going forward for all of this technology, even AI. Yeah. So what's, uh, do you have a ask for our audience and what they should do or should, should think about or should they just continue basically making sure there's some space in their plans for new and novel technologies? Well, I guess it depends on who's listening. If it's just a lawyer, and I say just a lawyer, <laughs> if it's a lawyer, welcome. <laughs> Probably what you've heard has been hopefully interesting. But I think the sort of takeaway that I see is, is just give, give yourself some time to think about this stuff and get curious about it. I think that's the that's the sort of first step. There's, there's a lot of great resources out there, but I think that would be the first step. If it's people who are doing this in-house, mm-hmm. I'd say, again, you'll just need time and not expecting things to happen straight away, mm-hmm. but equally getting resources on the ground, I think is absolutely key now to make the most of a lot of these legal, particularly legal tech products. I mean, I'm focusing on legal tech, but as you yeah. say, innovation is more than just technology, but giving giving yourself the time to, to look at what you're doing. I mean, even I find that my day job of just being a product manager takes me away from thinking more outside the box 
But to get to those, what we just talked about, the sort of final frontier solutions where we're really rethinking stuff, we need to be having big conversations across law firms as well, not just within law firms. We need to be having conversations with clients about that external side of transformation to really accelerate this. And But even just a small action now is great, I think. <laughs> yeah. a step in the right direction. Perfect. Well, thank you, Karen. It's been wonderful and a pleasure. I will certainly include a lot of these comments in the show notes when the podcast goes live. And yeah, thanks again for joining us today. Oh, thank you very much, Ab. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Fringe Legal Podcast. Before you go, I have a huge favor to ask you. If you enjoyed the show, please consider leaving a review on iTunes. It'll take less than a minute and really helps others find the podcast. Meanwhile, you can find the show notes and resources from the episode on our website at podcast.fringelegal.com. That's podcast.fringelegal.com. See you next time.